Branko Melodic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. And today we have with us in our studio, Matthew Candelars is the CEO of the Urban Development Institute of Australia, Victoria Division. Uh, he was also once the Victorian Deputy Executive of the Property Council of Australia, a role which saw him spearhead countless successful advocacy campaigns and lead the organisation as Interim Executive Director on multiple occasions, including extended stints through a state election, which I believe the Victorians have just had one, and through the our fun and games pandemic. Prior to the Property Council, um, Mr Candelars held senior roles within Victorian and South Australian ministerial offices, serving as Chief of Staff to Deputy um, Premier and Minister for Planning in South Australia and Senior Advisor to two Victorian Ministers. That's quite a CV. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Matthew Candelars. Hi, Branko. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I'm glad I, I pronounced Matthew okay this time. You okay. got it perfectly. <laughs> okay, so, you know, urban development, urban design, urban planning, whatever, there's been in the news recently, and, and, and I've, I've noticed its, its frequency in the news is increasing. Um, do you, th- what part of urban development do you think we get right here in Australia? And what part do you think we still get wrong? Oh look! I'll, ever the uh, the pessimist, I suppose, Brack. I might start with what we get wrong. Um, Fair enough. I look. I I don't think that we do density in Australia as well as we could, uh, particularly here in Victoria. I'm I'm based in Victoria, but right around the country, um, I think that we have the wrong conversations around density. And it means that the community instantly goes to high density. Uh, in their mind, high density, they're thinking Kowloon, they're thinking skyscrapers, uh, which is not what we're talking about as an industry. Um, so I think there's a disconnect there. And I think we need to get better at talking about density in the sense of medium density and higher, not necessarily high, but higher density. Uh, because ultimately we've got, and, and this is well known, and this is probably why, we're in the paper as much as we are at the moment or in the news as much as we are, but um, housing affordability is at a crisis point. Uh, prices are are constrained at the moment. Uh, demand is constrained with interest rate rises and cost of living pressures, but affordability is not getting any easier. Uh, so we're at a real tipping point and supply needs to be part of the conversation and density, again, medium and higher density, needs to be a really important part of that equation. You know that's a that's a really interesting point. You know when you when you say that, but people do think, and I, look, I do too. When when people say urban development, people say you know you know density. They're thinking of those massive towers when you're flying to Hong Kong. You know there is that is a problem, isn't it? Because you know that term, the broad umbrella term of urban development. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of almost getting a slightly negative connotation but we, it, it can't because as you say we have issues with with housing affordability or rental affordability on top yeah. of that. we have 
issues of sustainability because we know that that you know it's more sustainable to put ten people on a block than one. Okay, um, how how are you how are you going about remedying this this sort of shift towards you know pessimism when it comes to um yeah. uh, development? Well, look, I, I think to be quite honest, we need to have a more mature conversation about density. Um, I I think that conversation needs to come from political and policy decision makers first and foremost. You can't necessarily have the industry, the developers, going out there and leading the charge in a conversation about density because, you know, it's for whatever reason, and, you know, maybe you can tell me why, Branko, developers aren't really trusted when it comes to the word density. Um, there's, there's always, you know, the the, the vested interest uh, or the alleged vested interest in that conversation. We need to be having a mature conversation, and, and this is a... a a comment it's an apolitical comment it's a comment that i i you know i talk about policy makers and political decision makers across different tiers of government local government state government and all political parties we need to be having an honest conversation we need to be telling the community what density higher density is about and the important part of the housing supply and therefore the affordability equation that it that it uh, plays because ultimately, I mean, you know, you look at the typical, and I'll, I'll you know, in my mind, the typical NIMBY um, is is probably someone living in a beautiful leafy suburb on a quarter acre block, you know, priced in the you know high ones, probably low twos upwards uh, in terms of millions. That is, um, you know, not in my backyard, not in my suburb. Well, we can't be having the conversation uh, on the one hand about. You know, don't don't come and you know build up on transport nodes in and around my suburb. But also, on the other hand, say, so, well, where are my kids going to live, and where are my grandkids going to live? So we need to be having a really honest conversation, and that starts with again all tiers of government, all political parties. Um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, um, we've just gone through in Victoria a state election campaign, and and it's not just the Victorian uh concept to be talking about overdevelopment or being anti-density when it comes to election campaigns um it, it's you know in every state every territory every city but you know ultimately we need to be having that honest conversation and we need to be saying look we can't keep growing the way we are which is out solely exclusively out and not up and again that needs to be uh tempered by we're not talking 50-storey, you know, uh, South Bank or Docklands or CBD Towers, we are talking um, higher or medium density, which is appropriate to its uh, to its surroundings. Uh, it, it's contextual and it has to be contextual. You know, you mentioned in the, in the intro again uh, that I've worked across different states. I've worked in South Australia. So a conversation about density in Adelaide needs to be very, very different to a conversation about density in Melbourne. In Sydney, in in London, or you know New York, uh, it, it needs to be contextual. So we need to be having that honest conversation, and it starts with again all tiers of government. It's interesting you you you, you say that. There's been recent um, press here in Sydney that um, you know amongst our well. 
I call them I call them the teal suburbs now because that's that's where most of their um parliamentarians mm-hmm. are, 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 are called um where they're really fighting against any sort of extra development is is there a danger of of density or more dense um, urban development being relegated to and dare I say in inverted commas the less well-off suburbs while the leafy teal suburbs as, as I love to call them yes yeah. sort of you know in the uh, as they've always been. Is, is there a danger of that happening? Well, I, I think there there is. Uh, and, you know, it's quite frankly a conversation that you might might easily transpose the word density there for affordable or social housing as well. It's the same conversation. Uh, we, we need to be uh, consistent across different demographics. Now, again, it, it's all contextual. And, and uh, density done well, density done right, uh, relies on... Uh, those dwellings being appropriate for their surroundings. So I'm not, you know, again, in the, in the Melbourne context, I'm not suggesting that you go and throw a, you know, a 10 or 15-storey apartment tower next to, you know, beautiful heritage homes. Um, that That's not the case at all. But even in those areas and those suburbs, in, you know, as you coin them, the teal suburbs, there are uh, areas which are appropriate for greater density, uh, areas on, you know, activity centres, you know, thoroughfares, train stations, uh, tram routes here in Melbourne. Uh, but they are appropriate and they shouldn't necessarily be uh, discounted simply because of a a vocal uh, cohort in the electorate. Uh, ultimately, I, I think what you'll get then, and I think, you, you know, your, your question almost leads into this, is, um, you know, uh, based on social uh, or demographic uh, changes between electorates. You, you you have the haves and the have-nots, or the you know different different um, accepted practices depending on how much you earn. Essentially, you mentioned transport routes. There, there is a there is a an idea or a concept. I've, I've forgotten what it's called now, but it's where the developer, you know, um, puts up the 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 it's called medium dense. You know, mm buildings but they also pay for the for the transport infrastructure yeah value capture that's the one value yeah capture. yeah um, so, that, that's that is not i mean it's not something that's that's all that popular here but it seems to be um increasingly common overseas um is there a reason why australians have, have sort of um not um embraced that idea yeah look i, I think look it's it's a bit of a tricky conversation and relies on, again, a little bit of context, I think, because uh, sometimes people will say, look, the value is actually already there, so it's actually value release <laughs> in many ways. Um, but the other thing I would say, Branko, is, look, again, I can speak in the Victorian context, um, different developer contributions, um, so through state taxes uh, and direct developer infrastructure contributions, open space contributions, actually already account for uh, and uh, some research that we've done. Forty-two percent of a new home uh, goes towards uh, uh, fees, taxes, and charges. So, look, I've, absolutely, it's it's a conversation that that can be had, um, but ultimately, the value needs to be released. Uh, the, the government's very good at capturing value, not great at releasing it. 
uh, on the one hand. And then secondly, we need to take into account what that means for affordability as well, because ultimately, you know, like a, uh, any any input material into any product, um, the, the greater the, the cost of materials or, or inputs, the greater the final price will be. So, you know, if we're looking again in Victoria, 42% of a new home is taxes, fees or charges. Um, it, it's hard to maintain affordability. And I think that's another conversation we need to be having as well, just while I'm on that. Um, in the conversation about density, again, it is about affordability. How do we mean, maintain affordability? And that's a, a really key ingredient in doing density well. You know, density can't simply be a penthouse for a for a millionaire or a billionaire. Uh, it, it's got to be something that is accessible for, again, going back to that earlier comment, the, the kids and the grandkids, where they can actually aspire to own a home. Interesting. In Sydney in particular, but I also believe in Melbourne now, there's been a fair amount of talk um, about development in flood-affected or flood-prone prone areas. Um, you know, what are your views on this? And, and, and you know, th th there has been this, um, I mean, there are buybacks now going on up up the northern coast of New South yeah. Wales. Um, do you think that, it is. It's. It would work for the government to sort of say, you know, to, to actually to to deem large swaths of land to be, you know, cannot be built on. Is that is that something that will, will work over time? And and then that also leads into the back into what we just spoke about, doesn't it? I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna cut down supply in one in one area, you're gonna have to increase it in another, aren't you? Well, you you're absolutely right. So it's, look to the first part of your your question around. Um uh flood prone areas i think look you know planning regulations and controls can and if they're not should be in place uh to deal with this and if if so obviously you set a uh set uh some rules and and people uh need to abide by that uh, but but to the second part and this is the the complex part again as you point out around affordability um if you're shutting down supply in a particular area, and that could be a flood-prone area, it could be a you know an urban growth boundary, it could be anything. Um, but if you're shutting down supply or constraining supply in any particular area, you need a release valve somewhere else. And I think that's you know to to take this conversation outside of the the question about floods for a moment and just talk generally. You know, back here in Melbourne, um, the conversation around land supply is sometimes a black and white conversation around um urban sprawl growth areas uh versus medium to higher density in the inner and middle rings um and again sometimes you get policy makers uh who say well look you can't have urban sprawl that's terrible it's a terrible outcome for planning and for the environment and for sustainability uh for livability uh and on the other hand they say well look you can't build there in the inner suburbs uh, you know, it's it's just not appropriate. You can't go, you know, four or five stories here on a on a main thoroughfare right next to a, a tram stop, three or four kilometres from the city. It's just not appropriate, and the the local community won't allow it. So you know, something's got to give. And I think again, that's why it's so important that we have an honest and a mature conversation about density, uh, because ultimately we need to be building up this density across the inner and middle rings. And if we're not um, sprawl will need to continue. Uh, and again, I don't think that's a, a good outcome, carte blanche. No, it's not. I mean, it, it's it's not a good outcome on any sort of level. I mean, let's talk about sustainability. And 
last thing you want, whether they're, whether they're in electric cars or not, the last thing you want is people travelling yeah. each, each one way to work. I mean, that's just absurd, which I've done it myself, and I find mm. it appalling. Um, so, okay, so how do we have this uh, mature conversation? You, you know, you said that you mentioned that word a couple of times. Yeah. Um, is it what is stopping us from you know from reaching that level of of mature you know dialogue? Look, I, I think a lot of it comes down to um, local politics, quite frankly, and 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 then you break that down. Why is local politics so against having this conversation? Um, I think it's a lack of education. It is a lack of education, and and uh, in that, I think you know again, it's. I mean, you you look at any uh, local council chamber on any particular night that a decision is made, you, you're not going to get so many people in there saying, look, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's go ahead and uh, and build this thing. Um, if people are in that chamber, they're there to oppose it and probably quite vocally. Um, now, I don't, I, maybe I'm being unkind. I, you know, if you look at the demographics of those who might be... Um, arguing against any particular development they they may may well be homeowners <laughs> they're not struggling with housing affordability at the moment but their kid again I, I said this earlier and I, I you know i think it, it is worth repeating their kids and their grandkids are where we need to be educating them around the importance of of density i think it's it's in large part a great unknown um and in large part some in some ways a little bit of ignorance around you know, medium or higher density living as well. If you if you haven't lived in uh, an apartment, let's say, or a unit, um, perhaps there's a a conception, you know, a, a preconception that look, why would anyone want to? <laughs> you know, I've I've always lived in a detached dwelling. Why would anyone want any different to what I've had? And I think you know, if you look at you know Victoria, I, I heard, and this was you know, we had our election on on Saturday. I heard something in the election analysis that, um, you know, demographic-wise now, the uh, the millennial cohort are the biggest electoral force, certainly in Victoria. Uh, so they've overtaken the baby boomers in, in being an electoral force. Um, and you look then at under 35s, again, I've, this is what I've heard, I'll take it as fact. Uh, some exit polls showed it was a 2PP towards the progressive side, the, the Labor side, and the green side of politics down here of 67%. Um, so they're a huge force. And I think in time, as we're having that conversation about housing affordability, as more and more of that generation, uh, the millennial generation, are being um, forced perhaps to to either delay or give up the, the dream of home ownership, you know, hopefully that conversation can can come to the fore a lot more. But ultimately, you know, at the moment, You've got a, a system where approvals are granted in a in a council chamber on a Tuesday night with you know seven or eight or fifteen people present, all baying for blood, <laughs> and it is a very brave councillor to make a decision that isn't popular. Now our premier down here on on Saturday night, uh, re-elected premier, I made the point. And I think he he quoted Paul Keating on this that that leadership is about not doing what's popular but doing what's right. Um, and I think that is, again, the case in uh, the conversation about density as well. Now, no one, and, I, you know, I represent a number of developers, but no one is asking for, you know, um, developers to, to absolutely come through and, 
you know, demolish a suburb and build up again to, to 50 stories. Uh, I've certainly never called for that in my role and I never will. Um, but we need to be having that conversation. If we are, you know, three or four, five kilometres from the CBD and we're on a major transport route uh, and it can be done in a way that is sympathetic, uh, density can be done in a way that's sympathetic to its surroundings, then I think it's incumbent on those decision makers to do it, whether it's popular with that cohort of 15 people in the council chamber or not. So let's talk about supply. You're not a fan of property taxes. I'm not, I'm not sure if anyone actually is really. <laughs> but, um, how would you replace, if you if you wanted to replace them, mm. how would you replace the money government gets from these taxes? I mean, what, where, where else could it, could it get the money from? Yeah, <laughs> that's an excellent question. And I guess, uh, look, before I before I answer that question, I'll just point out that you know in the Victorian state budget. And I'm not sure the, the figure in New South Wales where you are, Branko, but in Victoria, in this year's state budget, uh, they break down state taxation revenue. Um, they have the total figure and then they break it down into each of the, the line items. 52% of the state's taxation revenue comes from property taxes. So wow. stamp duty and land tax make up a huge proportion. There are some others there as well. Um, so I don't think that is sustainable. Um, and I guess the question that you raise is a, is a very challenging one and it probably leads me to say, thank goodness I'm not one of those decision makers working in Treasury and Finance who have to make the decisions about where this money comes from. But I'll give you an example uh, of a conversation that we had down here in Victoria earlier this year. The government announced, uh, it was mid-February, a social and affordable housing tax. Uh, it was 1.75% on... Uh, new residential developments. Uh, that tax was uh, forecast to raise $800 million per annum to pay for social and affordable housing. So let me say at the outset that the intent was absolutely right. It was meritorious. Um, social and affordable housing is, um, is a crisis point and it needs a steady, secure stream of funding. Um, but the way this tax was levied solely on residential development meant that um, there's only one way that tax can work. And, you know, again, developers might not have the, the greatest of reputation um, as, you know, as a charitable uh, institution. But, you know, ultimately, again, if the if the cost base goes up, it, it's going to get passed on. So it was going to drive up the price of housing, particularly first-time buyers. So the the argument that we made at the time uh, was, look, again, we completely support social and affordable housing and it needs that secure funding base, but it shouldn't solely be coming from new residential development. There is, you know, I, I'm i not a home owner, I'm a mortgage owner. Um, you know, that'll be the case for, for many, many years and paying more and more each month, of course. But, um, you know, as a mortgage owner, and I'm, you know, I'm very lucky to be in the position I am. Uh, we got in before you know prices relatively speaking um kicked off and you know we're, we're very lucky living in a place that we love but why as as a homeowner why shouldn't i be sharing in the um the raising of funds to pay for social and affordable housing why should it only be new home buyers not homeowners um and i think that's or why in fact should it be the 
development industry solely as opposed to any other uh, part of the business community because ultimately community uh, the social and affordable housing is a community-wide issue it's not just an issue for the development sector it's not just an issue for first home buyers or new home buyers it's an issue for all of us um, and I think again as a society we need to be having those conversations of being able to share the load a lot more than we presently do again when you go back to 52 cents in every dollar the state raises comes from property I don't think that load is being shared appropriately at the moment or sustainably uh, and lo and behold we have um, a situation where house prices are where they are um, so look to, <laughs> it's a long way to answer uh, what should have been a fairly simple question but I, I think we need to be more creative and be prepared as a community to share the load a lot more than we presently do no such thing as a, a, as a simple answer to tax in Australia. Exactly right. Exactly. I don't think there's, there's ever been a simple answer to any tax in this country, from what I've noticed. Um, let's talk. Let, let's get all creative for a moment. Let's mm. put our CPA hats away. Um, the design. Okay. Let's talk about design. You know, yeah. um, do you think that, firstly, or how can good design ensure long, longevity of, of, you know? Of of of, of uh, development, okay. Yeah. And how do you think wood design could help with affordability? Absolutely. Well, look, I think both actually come back to to one word, uh, and that is sustainability. Um, so I, I think more and more these days, it's becoming not even a question, not an option, but a non-negotiable, as it should be, as it should be. Um, so in terms of good design, I think, and this is what I hear from my members, and this is in an infill setting and also a greenfield setting. So even the, the first home buyers in the outer suburbs with a house and land package, they are asking and they are expecting uh, their new home to be sustainable. So I think as a, as a developer, as a consultant, as an architect, um, it, it's a non-negotiable to be putting forward products that are sustainable uh, and that's only going to get uh, you know more uh, become more and more the case um, as we face this climate crisis that we are facing um, I think what that does as uh, or to, to that point in fact um, I'll say that my members are the good ones <laughs> the ones who don't join our body and I, I don't say that because you know they you know have to, to blow our trumpet is the UDIA but I think you know, if you've got a, a developer who's in there for one project and one project only, generally speaking, or developer, it could be any any occupation or any profession. But if they're there for, for a project to make a quick buck and to move on, they're not going to join an industry body or an advocacy group um, and, you know, try and try and improve standards within the industry. So my members, I will say, uh, by, by virtue of joining an industry association, not just mine, but any industry association, are there for the long haul. And they want to do the right thing. Uh, by and large, the industry wants to do the right thing. But um, they live and die by their reputation as well. So, you know, if you are developing a project, and and quite frankly, it's a, a terrible project, it's, you know, falling apart, uh, either either metaphorically or literally, um, and it's, it's not a sustainable product and it's, it's bloody ugly, well, good luck when you go to, you know, developing your next project. So it is a reputational thing. And, you know, obviously, you know, it's, it's like any market, any industry, 
you know, the top of the market brings the rest up or it should bring the rest up. Uh, and as it becomes, you know, as the, the bigger players and the better players, either, you know, institutional or private developers, um, as they lift the standards and they continue to lift the standards with innovation and sustainability, the rest of the market gets dragged there because it does become the expectation. So I think that's on, you know, good design, sustainability, on affordability and and whole of life affordability. Again, sustainability is the only word or the first word and the primary word that comes to mind. Um, you know, you look at, um, you know, the, the number of people now who are looking to retrofit gas into electric, uh, for instance, and you know, we're, we're having those conversations with utility providers and, you know, the way even the greenfield estates are being uh, developed and connected these days, it's a it's a very different conversation to what it was five or ten years ago. And that's, again, because people are demanding that. Um, now, the price of entry, it's it's a, it's a, an interesting question to talk about the price of entry. So you pay a little bit more for your sustainable place or solar or, you know, fully electric, uh, but then... If you can make that price of entry, if you can meet that, you know, the whole of life um, cost of a, a home is obviously going to be a lot better. So, look, I think both both in terms of what people are after and good design and also what makes it cheaper and more affordable over the long run, sustainability is front of mind for, for purchases and, you know, by extension for my members as developers and the, the consultants that, that input into the developer industry. It's greenfield, brownfields or adaptive reuse. Which of those three do you think work the best? Work the best, so in, in the sense of sustainability? Well, I think in sustainability, it's, you know, that, that argument's a little bit more complicated. Mm. Because, you know, sure, you could say that the most, and it's true, you, you could say that the most um, sustainable building is the one you're sitting in right now. But if that building isn't, isn't uh, energy efficient? Well, yeah. rebuild something and have a complete energy efficient. But in terms of, in terms of affordability, in terms of you know, um, uh, how would I say? Well, I guess that's price also affordability. Mm, yeah. Um, and, and also supply level of supply. What do you think works best? The greenfields, yeah. uh, brownfields, or, or adaptive reuse? Which, by the way, the, the latter, the last, I'm actually a big fan of. But that's just my yeah, opinion. yeah. Look, I. I would say, and maybe this is the the coward's answer, Branko, but you need a mix. You really do need a mix. Um, and I think a successful housing market um, has that mix because it provides uh, different price points. It provides affordable price points in different different markets, and it provides housing choice. You know, I think it's probably a little bit um, uh, cute of me or, or anyone to say, look, you know, infill is best because you know a mum and dad with you know three kids might decide not on affordability but on on lifestyle choices might decide that a, a new home in a greenfield estate is actually best for them they like the the backyard and the trampoline the quarter acre dream um you know young professional couple or a, a downsizing couple or a right sizing couple it might be infill um so i think there needs to be a mix in any successful housing market anywhere in the world should have that mix because ultimately, you know, you talk about, and we have been talking quite extensively about sustainability, but you can have the most sustainable home in the world, but if it's, you know, out of reach financially of 95% of the market then, or 100% of the market in, in some cases, 
um, you might as well just have it as a, you know, a demonstration project and nothing more. It needs to be affordable. It needs to be realistic. And, it, you know, I guess there, there's the challenge for our industry and, and for the architects as well is how do we meld best practice, design and sustainability or, you know, livability with affordability? How do we meld innovation with affordability to get the best possible product but then, importantly, the best possible product at an affordable price. Um, and I think that's, that's important. So, you know, not just in terms of price points, but housing choice and, you know, different different families, different, different um, household formations at different stages of their life will have different um, requirements. And I think it's important the market, you know, provides for, for each of them. do you measure the fine or, or, or show um, density done well? I've been watching a lot of the World Cup over the last week or so, um, and it's probably like a, a good referee. It's probably when it's not noticed. <laughs> I think when it's done well, it's not noticed. Uh, and again, going back to that that example of, you know, the, the 15 noisy locals in a council chamber on a Tuesday night, density's noticed. Uh, and when density is noticed, it's probably not well received. So um, now how, how that's done, that's a great question. And, I, you know, if I, if I could crack that code, I probably wouldn't be running an industry body. I'd be off making, uh, making plenty of money. <laughs> but, uh, look, it, it is a really interesting question. I think it, it combines a lot of what we've spoken about. It combines obviously good design and that's, you know, good aesthetic design. Uh, it provides sustainability. It provides affordability. Uh, it provides, you know, livability and walkability. Um, you know, you look at the the social and health outcomes of, you know, well-connected communities and whether that's, you know, new developments or whether it's established suburbs with, you know, uh, heritage heritage listings left, right and centre. But, you know, the, the health outcomes in those communities as opposed to the health outcomes in some of the outer suburbs of Melbourne, I'm sure Sydney as well, and other cities around the country, um, you know, that that's it's really quite shocking. Uh, so all of these factors come into play when it, it comes to doing density well. I think the development industry has a, a really important role to play there. In fact, on uh, Friday, we've got our Awards for Excellence Gala down here in Melbourne, and we've got a 1,000 people coming along to celebrate the best of our industry over the past 12 months. And I think that's important. It's it's important to call out the good projects and to celebrate the good projects. Uh, I wish that decision makers, again, going back to my earlier comments, I wish that they would too. And they would come along and, and see, you know, a, a fantastic, aesthetically pleasing, affordable um, block of flats in, you know, Preston in Victoria, the Middle Ring or Burwood. Uh, or Footscray, um, because that will that would mean the conversation becomes a lot easier. Um, so I think we need to call out the best. But I think also, uh, and this is this is on me and my membership as well in our industry, um, it's important to to call out when it hasn't been done well, and for us to say, look, that's that's not appropriate or acceptable, and we need better outcomes. Because ultimately, as I said, you know, the the top of the industry brings up. A lot of the industry, but like anything, you're as strong as your weakest link. 
and the you know the the bottom of the industry and and again i'll say that they're not my members but um, <laughs> i hope not anyway um but but the bottom of the industry is ultimately and again any industry is what you're judged on uh, so when you come into that council chamber, I keep call, talking about this uh, hypothetical council chamber on a Tuesday night, but when you come in there, everyone in there arguing and complaining against any proposal for a new development is thinking about that worst-case example that they've seen. So do you think that Australians will ever fall in love with high-density or medium-density living? I mean, bar the empty nesters who kind of don't have a choice, mm. uh, you know, and bar people who are, you know, looking even even people, I guess, demographically speaking, we're going to have a lot of single people retiring in the next, you know, thirty or forty years. Yeah, I mean, but bar though, because it's they're kind of forced to to enjoy high or medium living in a way. But do you think overall Australians will will fall in love with the concept? Whether they ever fall in love with it, I'm not sure, but I think it will be. Um, it already is and will continue to be a gentle evolution. I think it'll be evolution and not revolution. Um, I think, as you point out, you know, the demographics of, of our society is an ageing society more and more. Either those people, um, as they age, will want to right size, they won't want or can't can't maintain the quarter acre block and the, the big lawn and, and garden. Uh, and maybe the kids will get sick of coming around to do it all the time or paying someone to do it. Um so they may themselves um, move into, you know, a medium density dwelling, for instance, or a smaller place with a with a courtyard, as opposed to the big block. Um, and if it's not them, then perhaps it's their children, as you know, the 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 big home is passed down through the family. You know, decisions might be made, and you know, you might get the, you know, in some cases, it's the two for one, three for one, four for one. But you know, more and more, I think we'll see that. We are seeing, and again, affordability is a huge factor in this because we're seeing even in the Greenfield estates, typically we think of Greenfield, we think quarter acre, hills hoist, you know, trampoline in the backyard. It isn't that anymore at all. Um, average lot sizes are decreasing because affordability is getting tougher and tougher. So, you know, uh, your money doesn't go as far and, and you know, the market needs to adapt to that. If, if the purchases aren't there... You need to adapt. So you, you cut the block sizes, you create small lot housing, um, and I think we'll start to see that more and more. Now, again, I don't think I don't know that we'll ever entirely fall in love with it, but I think over time we will we will learn to uh, we'll see its benefits uh, and we'll learn to accept it either through love or through just pure pragmatism. Urban Development Institute of Australia Victoria Division CEO Matthew Candelas. Thank you very much. Franco, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Branko Melodic, and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews, and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine.